Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of breakfasts for this week, short week, ending Friday the 4th of November. Daniel Mon and usually Bobby, but this week Steph Teitelbaum filmed in. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia and coming up on the podcast. This week we were joined by artist Roan about his latest installation time taking place in the Flinders Street Ballroom. Flick Ford came in to tell us about the new drama mystery, The Wonder. And I posed to the team some genius new ideas in Steph's Shark Tank. Dr Jen got stuck into the weird science of diagnosing heart disease and we were joined by illustrator Oslo Davis, who swung by with his cheeky new book, Oslo's Melbourne. Triple R. Melbourne-based artist Tyrone Wright has established an international reputation for large-scale portraits and atmospheric multimedia installations, including groundbreaking projects Empire, the Omega Project, Empty and Roan in Geelong. Now, Roan's 21 years working as an artist has culminated in an epic new installation, Time, that now occupies Flinders Street Station's hidden third floor and ballroom, and to tell us about it, the genre-pushing mural maker and so much more joins us now. Roan, welcome to Breakfasters. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's it's our pleasure. Your white whale, you've described this as. Um, yeah. t- tell us uh, how come and why this uh, project has loomed so large in your mind for so long. Um, it was, you know, it, I think everyone knows it as the Melbourne icon and there's always been the kind of rumours or urban legend that there is a ballroom up there and rarely do we get to see even a photo of it. Um, I think Open House Melbourne had like a lottery to get a handful of people up there years ago and I remember missing out on that. And um, it basically came to me as an opportunity or just I ran into uh, the planning minister, Richard Wynne, and I asked him, well, basically, what's, what's happening upstairs at Flinders? And I knew they'd done a big renovation. And he's like, yeah, there's actually no plan. And no plan to me just meant there's an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> Did you actually run into him? Oh, he came to my last exhibition. On the last day of mm. my last exhibition, he's like, oh, what are you thinking of next? I'm like, what are you doing upstairs there? <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. Uh, and so had you had ideas or was it you saw the space and then it came to you? Uh, really, it was after I saw the space. Um, I had no real concept of what was up there and the limitations um, – you know, with such a building, of course, uh, that, you know, and restrictions that would be placed on me. So I had to go into it very, very flexible. Like if I, you know, had a set goal of what I wanted to do and like paint every single wall blue, it's just, it would not have happened <laughs> at all. So I had to just remain really fluid for the whole project. And how do you describe what you've done? I've, I describe it as like um, kind of what I imagine would be there if everyone walked away 50, 60 years ago and left it as is. Like, it's not a true history at all. Um, You know, it's quite fictional, but there's definitely uh, a lot of influence from the truth of what was in the building or buildings nearby and stories, I guess, that kind of connect to myself and uh, Melbourne. Mm. And now what sort of themes are covered in individual rooms? Um, a good one is probably the, uh, there's a room, uh, the workroom is full of uh, sewing machines and that's a real nod to Flinders Lane where even my grandmother worked for years as a seamstress and it has a beautiful large windows and the natural light coming in. And um, But then the building itself kind of 
it feels quite like a government administration building, mm. which you know is not something you think of uh, kind of beautiful and romantic, but there's this kind of sense of um, workforce and community that kind of goes with that. And so I tried to create these, um, you know, workforce looking spaces, but then give real individual personalities to almost each desk or, um, you know, uh, individual like that once was there. Mm. There's incredible attention to detail in this. So even I noticed um, when I went over the weekend, there you know they've got Rowan written on little matchboxes and things like that, and it's on a lot of the books on the shelf in that room. That's like a library. How much um, sort of plan? Are there a lot of Easter eggs that you think people will be missing when they go uh, through? Th- thousands of Easter eggs, and that was the kind of fun of making it. And there's so many items or products that we just couldn't find so we made them so we would kind of make you know little stories or you know in jokes or just little self-referencing things Mm. while we're creating those those things so I think it'll help people identify that you know um, we are having a bit of fun with this and it is a fiction and Cause I think it's this easy is our to story think, to tell as well. Yeah. yeah, it'd be easy to walk through it and think that it's not fictionalised. Yeah, and I think that's... like The people who have the, the most uh, amazing experience are the ones who, who know absolutely nothing. Mm. And I kind of love the idea of you know people coming in there and I've just painted something on the wall mm. and that's all they'll ever think of it as a project. Um, but then they discover, no, I built the wall you know, mm. like not even the walls real. So that's kind of uh, the more people kind of pull away at those um, discoveries, it's like there's more and more to find. And like the the further you look into it, the, like the details there, and you can't like we notice that like the more detail you put into it, it's, it's hard to um, fall out of the illusion. Mm. Did you go there over the weekend uh, and see people's reactions? Was it Patricia Piccinini mm. said that she would go to her exhibitions and then ask people what they thought and they wouldn't realise who she was? <laughs> um, I, I wasn't asking people what they thought, but um, <laughs> I, it was nice to see people's reactions. And, you know, I had one gentleman come to me, um, I think it was fairly early Saturday morning, and he'd just come through with his wife and she had dragged him there and he had no idea what he was walking into. And he told me, he just like, he broke down and cried in one of the rooms oh, and wow. just like, he'd just never been affected by such you know, outwork in such a way. So it was really kind of um, uh, honest feedback mm. and just so amazing. And just the, the emotional response um, that the exhibitions had is quite overwhelming. And I, you know, huge credit to uh, Nick Batterham who did the soundtrack. Mm. Like he spent years composing that and it's so powerful and um, the way that it's presented within the space, it's over like 64 channels and, um, he recorded a lot of the instruments individually. So you'll just have, as you walk into a room, you're like you'll hear like the whole ensemble. And as you get further across, you'll notice it's like just one, you know, violin or cello is just coming from one desk and it just gives that desk a presence. And yeah, like it's quite haunting. Mm. And yeah, like working with Nick, um, we'll create, we're able to create this presence in there that was just unlike anything else mm. of, um, know being able to experience anywhere else as well when you're working on something like this do you have a government bureaucrat standing over you making sure you don't do anything untoward or (laughs) deface anything in a way that wasn't previously set out uh absolutely um, (laughs) yeah a lot of uh um red tape 
for, you know, and rightly so, like this building, the significance of it for Melbourne, um, we don't want it destroyed or changed um, too much to degrade it. And I am respectful of that heritage as well. So I did have to work with um, heritage consultants on ways to avoid damaging things um, and work out methodologies where it's like, all right, we can't attach anything to the wall, but we can, um, you know, anchor certain things to the floor or use existing anchors or there's a few walls they did let me actually paint on because they were in a clean condition or nothing was going to flake off. Mm. So that was that kind of changed plans as I went along. And again, being quite fluid with the project, it's, um, I just had to remain flexible and just go with what I was allowed to do. And, but really, as you see, push those boundaries as well. Mm. What about the murals? Anyone who's familiar with work would know that there's a, that's the theme because obviously the installation is such a big part of it walking through every room, but in every room you have this sort of face looking at you. What's the story? Who is this, who is this woman or is it just something, a fiction, uh, something from your imagination? Oh, she's kind of a, a fiction, but her real name's Teresa and she's, um, you know, I paint from um, photographic references of her um, and she's a model I've worked with for uh, about 10 years now. So she, it's not so much a representation of Teresa herself, um, but more of a, an emotional state. And she's, let's kind of put her in the place of more of a, an, an actor. Um, and I just know she has this really amazing, but subtle, like emotional range um, that, you know, working with her that I'm able to get and, you know, and compose these uh, really fragile um, portraits on the walls and just the way I'm painting them almost looks like they're about to wash off or they could peel off the wall at any moment and I just feel that she's almost like this emotional conduit on the wall and like you walk in there and there's like this presence Mm. in the space like I try not to paint them to high contrast in that sense like you don't always uh, notice it straight away, which is kind of nice. You kind of it almost comes into focus. Mm. And then now that uh, you've tackled this white whale, is it? Do you feel like you've clocked Melbourne now? Uh, yeah, I definitely. I'm going to struggle to find a better building in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like part of the point of, um, you know, I just pulled out all the stops for this one. It was just, I know I'm not going to get a better opportunity to do another grand project in Melbourne in a better building. So it was like just do every single crazy idea I've ever conceived of and do it now. Um, but, like, I learned so much in doing this project to get it in there logistically. It all had to fit through an 80-centimetre-wide door and into a, a small lift up three mm. flights of stairs. So, and I had to develop it all off-site and then bring it in. So, with all that new knowledge I'm like I can definitely do this for any building anywhere in the world Mm. model it in 3d and then um, you know fabricate it here and then ship it off somewhere and that's kind of an exciting opportunity for myself because previously I would only have the ideas I'll have to move to another country and work there for a couple of years to do a project this large Um, but now it's kind of opened me up to do yeah larger projects like this uh, far and wide. Can I just confirm there? Have, yeah. So you've mapped what you've done maybe via computer or? 
Yeah, because I wasn't, you know, COVID and everything, um, previous exhibitions, I, I couldn't just spend years in the space building and constructing this. Um, and I couldn't even go back in there and like re-measure all the time. So I, I actually had the building scanned in 3D and then, you know, thanks to COVID and lockdowns, I uh, just taught myself how to do some 3D modeling thanks to YouTube um, <laughs> and just started putting furniture in there in the 3D models and that was the way I kind of built it and developed the whole project before even constructing it. Wow. Is it a, a Roan shipping container somewhere with lots of weird stuff uh, when you deconstruct There will be it? probably after this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I'm putting it all. That's, that's <laughs> one of my next big challenges. And is that emotional to kick off the typewriter off the table and uh, pack it up? Definitely. Yeah, like um, That would be sad to lo lose it all, but it also kind of goes back to, you know, painting on the street where it's like that's what happens to all your work it always you know eventually gets destroyed or faded or painted over and I kind of like that I'm now sharing that process with a much wider audience and people do have a you know emotional connection with my work and they experience that loss too. Mm. Just finally of the thousands of easter eggs just give our listeners one that it would be so easy to overlook, but there was attention given to it and it's worth airing. Um, in the pharmacy, there's a a teddy bear and I was working with Carly Spooner, who's a, the set dresser, and we are talking about, and I was sitting on, you know, like a waiting bench and we're like, oh, we need to put the teddy bear under the waiting bench because I know with my child, it's like you that's what happens you, you leave somewhere and they're like oh i've lost my toy and you're like oh where the hell is it and it's like it's under the bench like where we were because you've dropped it and like it's left there and you know it's just like it's just a bear hiding under a bench like, <laughs> you know, you know, like there's a story in it being left under the bench mm, yeah it's like those little things and it's nice to kind of just where you leave an item or place it, it's like you can tell a story with that. Beautiful. Well, Time, the epic new installation that now occupies Flinders Street Station's hidden third floor and ballroom is on now. There's been an extension? Extension to April. Extension to April. And for further information and tickets, uh, head along to roan.art, which is a good place to start. Um, Tyrone, Roan Wright, thank you very much for chatting with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Triple R. From Primal Screen, Triple R's Monday Night Movie Show, we're joined to talk film on breakfasts by the one and only Flick Ford. Morning, Flick. Morning. Uh, now, what has caught your eye? There must be so many films out there that you're tossing up what to talk about. Uh, yeah. What? Well, this is I've, I've got uh, a hot pick for you because it's just come out today. Um, technically, I suppose cinemas aren't quite open, so later today it'll be, <laughs> it'll be available. It is uh, Sebastian Lelio's The Wonder which is um, a film I've actually been pretty excited about uh, seeing. So I got to go to a, a preview screening of it. It's, um, it's a film that is set in a rural Irish village in, nine, in 1862. Um, it's, got a, it's got a pretty simple premise. So um, you have a British nurse called Elizabeth who is tasked with observing a young girl who hasn't eaten for four months and claims to be surviving on manor from heaven. So it's kind of a it's a curious little setup. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually based on a book by Emma Donoghue, who you may recognise the name from her 2010 novel Room, not to be oh. confused with The Room. <laughs> but uh, Room actually got adapted into a film, same as The Wonder. 
Um, and she wrote uh, the screenplay alongside the director, Sebastian Lelio, and Alice Birch. Um, so that's the setup. Um, <clears throat> you may be familiar with Sebastian Lelio. He directed oh, the wonderful film um, A Fantastic Woman. Have either mm. yeah, any of you seen yeah. I haven't seen it, just, it was oh. very popular. Yeah, and he also did Disobedience, which you may recognise with um, Rachel Weiss and, oh, I've had a Rachel McAdams, um, set in kind of an orthodox Jewish community about two women um, and their kind of hidden desire. So he does have a tendency to to do films on women, which Mm. is really curious for a male director um, because they're such strong women and they're such um, well-crafted characters. Obviously this is based on a book, so there's a bit of – and he has two women working on the – the screenplay with him. Uh, you have Florence Pugh as the lead. Um, you might recognise Florence Pugh. There's been a lot of drama around Olivia Wilde's new film. Don't um, don't worry. Don't yes, worry. don't worry. Don't have, seen it. It. No. <laughs> have you? Yes. yes. I'm, I've missed it. Unfortunately, I got I got to catch up. Oh really? Mm. Well, I was going to say huge shift in character, mm. like complete opposite. So yeah. Good acting, good yeah. acting chops. She say. really does. She is one of my favourites. She's so young, really, considering mm. how many amazing films. I, I first saw her in Lady Macbeth, which actually Alice Birch, who's one of the mm. writers for the screenplay, also worked on. Um, and she was tremendous in that. And she just is so comfortable in that kind of main she's character. Midsummer role. as well. Yeah, Midsummer. Mm. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> another very, you know, you could argue feminist film. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, she's fantastic. Um, and so the coupling of Pew with uh, Lelio, who um, I think he's just a really fantastic director. We also have Ari Wegner as the cinematographer and now Ari Wegner is a local Melbourneite. Uh, she worked on Jane Campion's Power of the Dog. Mm. So you kind of can get a sense of what this film might look like. Mm. Um, the Wonder is just such a simple, like I said, such a simple premise but so beautifully communicated. Um, I do have some small criticisms around it. There's, um, a, t- there's a, uh, a strange bit at the start where it kind of is a film set. So that whole kind of like breaking the fourth mm. wall where they acknowledge this is a film uh, that happens, uh, that kind of bookends the film. Uh, I don't think that's a spoiler. That's just a creative decision that Lelio's made quite out of character from his other films that don't have any of that sort of thing. We would have seen that last in, um, I don't know if you saw that TV series with um, Oscar Isaacs and Jessica Chastain called Scenes mm. from a Marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that had a similar thing where That's you would see them all. going. Yeah. Yeah, where you'd see them as actors mm. about to play a scene. But how does that lend to the film? Because I watched mm. the trailer and it seemed really dark and yeah. eerie and it feels like bringing it out would almost discredit what we're dealing with. Yeah, I suppose at the core of the wonder is this thing of stories, so the stories that we tell ourselves. There's lots of differing opinions and particularly faith is a massive thread throughout this film. So the faith of this young girl and her family who believe that she's being kept alive by God mm-hmm. um, and then a British nurse who is um, and got that great dynamic there with the Irish history and this British um, invader of sorts <laughs> coming in and, and taking having her take on this story um, who is obviously just very worried for the girl's well-being as she kind of watches her slowly disintegrate so it's a really fascinating compact com, um, uh, dynamic between them there's also this you can't talk about um, you know 
if you think about Irish history, you know, the idea of the famine, the potato famine, mm. and this idea of, um, you may have seen, I think it's, what's his name, Steve McQueen's fam- um, Hunger? Is it Steve McQueen? Or oh, I, uh, yeah. Sorry, I've had a mind blank on the director, but starring um, the wonderful, uh, oh, I had another mind blank. <laughs> <laughs> it's early morning. <laughs> anyway, you can look up Hunger. Um, wonderful film. Fassbender, isn't it? Fassbender, yeah. thank you. Michael yeah. Fassbender. Thank you. Uh, so you've got this sort of wonderful thread of, of hunger and then you've also got within, um, you know, it is based on a, on a real-life situation in which it's called Fasting Girls, which was mainly like very young Victorian girls, um, usually pre-adolescent, who basically said they were able to survive um, for infinitely long periods um, without any sort of any food at all, just simple water, um, because of uh, faith, their faith. Um, <clears throat> there's kind of talk about this being an early precursor to anorexia, mm. um, <clears throat> but also like a lot of the girls that are um, recorded in history are, um, are said to have like stigmata, which is um, the signs of the cross <clears throat> or like the you know Pardon crucifixion, yeah, 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 and so bleeding and things like that. So this question of 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 science and and faith is is very much tested but it's so beautifully communicated in this film i feel like there's a real respect for both positions um and just really i don't know it seems like a film which i don't know if many people will be drawn to and i hope based on this review lots more people do see it um it's going to have like a two-week release in cinema and then be on netflix i think that's the plan but there's something so beautiful and I, i haven't even mentioned the score for this um Really unusual score. So, you know, we're set in the 1862 and it goes for an almost like dark um, electronic mm. score in parts. Um, I'll oh. just try to find the – I think I've forgotten the name of the – I should have all my notes ready. But um, Matthew – I forgot the composer. It's such an interesting choice. Uh, Matthew Herbert did the music for this. And I'd be really interested to see if he gets any nominations in the award season because it's such a it's such a clever decision because it makes it really contemporary. It brings something that could be so niche and, you know, there's a very small cast in this film mm. that could be so niche and yet he brings it out in, and makes it kind of feel very current in some ways. And the performances at the centre of this are just so powerful. I think just even as a character study... A really beautiful film to watch. Is it uh, intense or is it a slow burn? Very much more slow burn. And this is why I really hope that viewers choose to watch it at the cinema rather than Netflix. I'm guilty of this as well with like the whole double screening and not really spending time with the film. I think that you will find it a much more enjoyable experience kind of being pushed into this space because... It's very slow moving, but there's so much being communicated in these looks. And I think that just the the really troubled history of Ireland is kind of it, this, it never quite directly acknowledged as some characters who are affected by it, but it's so subtle. And I think you could lose a lot by kind of not being fully engaged in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think there's this wonderful tension that is drawn out and to just sit with that I think is really a powerful experience in itself. Mm. Mm. Does uh, 1862 Ireland seem uh, fun? Is it a place we want to go <laughs> oh, to? Oh yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> you, know, you know what's interesting get? though? <laughs> there, is a, there is something of a um, relationship within this film that builds between um, two, two seemingly kind of unlikely characters and I think that 
it, it's very kind of believable in this sense that in in very bleak times and still finding like that need for connection um, especially as an outsider coming into this village and I think there's just a lot of depth to the characters it's like they've really thought mm. through each character what their motivations are um, fantastic performance as well by um, killer Lord Cassidy who's um, the young Anna who's at the centre of this uh, she just really holds holds her own um, up up against Pew, and and there's also sorry I forgot to say so Pew is the the nurse who's playing witness, but there's also a nun who's also mm. um, who kind of shares the shift with her. They take turns on the that, um, and they report to this board of um, uh, all male board um, who are a collection of scientists and and um, clergymen. So it's a really fascinating. Um, I think comment on both how women's bodies are being monitored um, and overseen by these men um, and also put at risk um, for the sake of curiosity um, Mm. and, and faith. It's The Wonder, and it has a pretty big release today, mm. lots of screenings on uh, its cinemas around town. And that director again? Sebastian Lelio. He's a Chilean director, and um, if you haven't seen his work, like I honestly cannot recommend A Fantastic Woman and Disobedience enough, so check those out before you see this one. The Wonder. Oh. Flick forward. Thank you. My pleasure. Melbourne's own Triple R. So this segment is called Steph's Shark Tank, Ooh. also known as Dragon's Den. Mm-hmm. Also known as, I'm sure, something else, somewhere else. <laughs> so I've got three ideas and you guys can vote for which one you think is the best or which one you would invest in. The business ideas. Yeah, so business ideas. Pretend we have a big glass case of money in front of us. Correct. Mm, oh, I, I should have told do. you to prepare props, actually. <laughs> it doesn't work as well in radio, but that's okay. <laughs> and, and on the actual show, what's mm. the strike rate? Does it, like, do a lot of people walk away? Is it yeah. like Australian Idol where they come and they think they can sing but then they get sent away? With the hard reality that they can't? Yeah, like I don't have the stats, but I would say a lot of people are walking away. Right, okay. So it's not mm. like we have to say yes to one. We no. could, we oh, could yeah. in the spirit of everything. Oh, mm. damn, ouch. <laughs> okay. All right, idea number one is, yeah. and I'm not sure if this actually exists, so tell me if... Oh, God, <laughs> Yeah, good start. <laughs> okay, so uh, you know how you get a ride share and you get in someone's car and they take you home? Yeah. So what about the... Opposite, where you drive your car to an event and then you decide I shouldn't drive and then you get a person on foot coming to drive your car with you in at home, leave your car there and then they wander off. Like a designated driver. Yes. I do think that exists already but I don't think, it's very, it? com- I don't think it's very common because I remember looking into something like that once. I was buying for someone's birthday, I was arranging a present at a winery and I was like it would be nice if I could kind of get them to not have to drive and I was looking into some kind of designated, and this was in like a winery region, but it was very, it was really hard to find. No, but I'm talking like on the fly. Just, oh, just like a random like hailing. just get someone you know, to I don't walk. Think that whoever's in the area, walk close to the bar, get in your car and drive you home, and then you leave them high and dry. And so they wear like a fancy a vest. vest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm so, into it. So that's number one. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I like it. Thanks. So someone's, but it's got to be maybe in an urban area. Otherwise, it's just like Wolf John Craig, Jarrett yeah. walking. To yeah. The <laughs> yeah, you do. You see who's in the area, like you do with um, whoever's like five minutes away. Let's say. Yeah. And then they'll just walk there. I'm not sure what you do with the other side. I haven't worked that out yet. Mm-hmm. It's not your problem. Oh yeah, because then they're just well, no, but it's well, just like a like a driver. Like then then they're in that suburb. And yeah, then, but they're on foot. Yeah. But yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. We leave that to the company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We leave that to, yeah. you know, proper people. <laughs> cool. And do, does it have a name? Sorry, or? Oh, yeah, does it have a name? Uh, human 
It doesn't have a name. It doesn't have a name. The human. (laughs) The human. (laughs) The human is the name. Okay. Second idea is an app that shows you how long the line is at a place you want to go. Ah. So if you're like... Oh, you know, I want to go to this bar, but I know there's a line, or like not even a bar. I want to go to this pizza place. Mm-hmm. There are no lines of pizza places, but somewhere. Yeah. How long is this line at a sushi train? I want to mm-hmm. know. I don't want to drive there and then not be able to get in. Yeah. So, and do you know how it would work? So it would tap into the location data of people outside the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd get a number of how many people are waiting in the line. Yeah. And you'd make a decision based on that. Genius, I know. But then, no, but then, so you and however X amount of people at home are looking at this line, but then if what if you all just, you know, but you all decide to go, you're like, oh, the line is long, we'll all rock up, and then all of a sudden, because you're all using the same app, so it doesn't doesn't account for traffic. This makes a lot of sense in my head. Yeah. Oh, I get it. So you're saying that... You need uh, to mitigate against people using the app and, can't, like... Can't. Doing what you're doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they're saying, oh, it's it's quiet. I'll go now. And then everyone else is thinking that. Yeah. Not our problem. That's fine. Not our okay, problem. Not our company's problem. problem. Yeah. yeah. You've Good already app. downloaded it. You've already got Good the app. in-app purchases. <laughs> exactly. And last but not least, someone to go to events for you, but you're in their ear. <gasps> All right. Ah. Yeah. So you don't have to. Well, I'm realizing that a lot of these are really lazy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it's about. Yeah, you get someone like, I really don't want to go. Mon, can you go to this dinner for me? You'll have an earpiece in your ears. Or like, I can tell you what to say to that person. And like, maybe you'll have like a photo of me on your face. Well, that's what I, was I don't know how far we're going with yeah. it yet. But you just feature for me. So a social proxy. A proxy. Yeah. Mm. And, and everybody knows that you're being fed a line. That this person is your representative. Yeah, they talk to you like they're talking to Steph. Right. Yeah, but they know that it's they know that you're home. Yeah, yeah, because it's so you. So it's not like espionage. Like, no, no, okay, no, no, okay. nothing dodgy about it. Pure mm. laziness. Yeah, okay. Uh, so it's not like can you tell Steph when you see her? It's just like bam. You're talking to and Steph. And what problem is this solving when you're social, feeling social, but you're lazy? Yeah, like you've got a feature somewhere, but you don't want to go. Okay. So you're still putting effort in because you're sitting on the couch saying. Oh, I love that book. And they go, oh, yeah. yeah. But you're not there. No. So it's kind of like having a phone call instead of an in-person yeah, meeting. Yeah, but you're still at the event. So anyone can talk to you as me oh. for, like, thinking they're me. Oh, they, they, everyone's fooled by No, it? everyone knows it's me. So they're talking as if it's me. Yeah. They're talking to, like, you know, you But it's actually it's John Jarrett who yeah. just picked you up. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're in their ear. Okay, yeah. But yeah. wouldn't it be uh, – I'm just spitballing. Mm-hmm. That's what they do on Shark Tank, the yeah, stress I mean, test. It's perfection, but go yeah. on. Uh, so <laughs> wouldn't I, – I would rather turn up and have an earpiece where I – so my brain – I can switch my brain off. Where So oh. I get taken over by the person at oh, home. Oh, so now we're getting full Matrix. Oh, yeah. Yeah. that's a good idea. Mm. You know what? Why don't we scrap the whole thing and you just show up for me. It's not me. You're just there for me. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm here for Steph. It's like you're accepting, an award. you're accepting an award on her behalf. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, no yeah, one's changed. No I'm pretending. going to dinner on behalf. Yeah. And it'd be called, it'd be called on behalf. Like, hi, yeah, hi. Yeah, it'd be called on behalf. <laughs> Steph couldn't make it. Yeah. Uh, I'm Daniel and I'll be your entertainment this evening. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Substitute teacher, but friend. Yes. Okay, great. And so the people <laughs> present with that meat suit, 
what do they think? They they feel like uh, you, you don't respect them. Like you Enough wouldn't want your person up. on behalf to turn up late. Initially, and, maybe. Yeah. But once it's a done thing, everyone's chill about it. And so we're. I mean, you've you've been describing like um, group dinners, but how how far could this go? Like, could it be a date? Could you send someone else on a date? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. What about? Well, that's probably not as bad as it gets, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like weddings, you know, family oh, definitely events. Definitely weddings. Yeah. Oh, my God. Family events, all of the above. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All of your ideas do seem to um, swirl around sort of uh, indignities and exploitations of humans. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Which is what it's all about. It's, if it's you want really, to be an entrepreneur. Exactly. Everyone's thinking it, no one's It's going to be full blown capitalist. You're yeah. welcome. you got to do this. I think that's good. And also, Designated Driver exists. Uh, in Japan and in Korea, someone said the driver has a little fold-up bike and they put it in your boot and oh, then they ride off home. I oh, see. That's good. That's really good. So we can't invest okay, in that. You can't invest in that. Exist. Apparently it also exists in Perth. What? Yeah. Designated drivers. There's a, there's a website. So there you go. Okay. But if you've got the designated driver in your back pocket, you'd, chances are you're going to use it, aren't you? As an app. Well, no, no, I I mean, figuratively, like the whole idea of you being a designated driver is off the table because it's like, well, I'll just get. But if there's a surge, then you're waiting forever for John Jarrett to show. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. But then it it also means you get your car home. Yeah, exactly. Because I don't like, I don't like getting in a ride chat on the way to an event. No. Oh, yeah. I just want to get in my car and go. That's your car. So that's what I'm trying to solve. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want details on this sushi train as a queue. How yeah. good could this sushi be? Yeah, maybe the queue. I don't know what we would invest in. I like the designated driver one the best. That's because it's already a fully formed idea and they're <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> so just give me a bit of cash for all of them then, I guess. Yeah, we'll split it. Whatever. How much do you need? It's all yours. <laughs> yeah, what are, yeah, we're in. We're all in. Yes. All the chips are in. Yes. <laughs> so says my on behalf person. And John Jarrett. I'm sitting in another room going, I'm getting ripped off. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. It's time for Weird Science with author and unsung hero of Australian science communication, <laughs> Dr. Jen. Hi, Dr. Jen. Just, you just squeeze that in so politely. Mm. Thank you, Daniel. Well, I like Good to morning. think that here you're very much sung. Mm. Oh, mm. Yeah, well, you guys sing to me, don't you? That's we right. Do. I'd yeah. like you to sing to me more. But not out there. No. No. Just in here, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what's going on in your science world? Well, I, I want to talk about something that actually I found really quite distressing this week. And one of my wonderful uh, science communication students at Melbourne Uni, Izzy, uh, talk to me about this story and I thought oh my gosh I think we better share this this is a bit of a public service announcement so I just want you to imagine for a second if you picture somebody having a heart attack are you picturing somebody who who identifies as a man or a woman man uh, yeah I, I don't know like I'd neither <laughs> I'm just picturing. No one's, having, no one's having heart attacks. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> seeing the left arm. That's all I'm seeing. I mean, yeah. you, 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 you know, it's pretty clear what I'm getting at, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That there's a general 
uh, perception, I think, that heart attacks are much more common among men than women. So most people, when you ask them, like, oh, yeah, I picture somebody on TV clutching their chest and falling to the ground. And, yeah, you're right, actually, that person is more mm-hmm. likely to be a man. But this research that Izzy alerted me to, it comes out of the UK, so that's the first thing to tell you, but I'm sure it has some pretty important messages for us. And it basically shows really worrying differences between men and women in terms of the health care they receive when it comes to heart disease and heart attacks. And it turns out that there's some general perceptions about heart attacks that we tend to have really wrong. So the first one is that we have this idea that heart attacks really only occur um, among men and not very commonly among women. And yes, it's true that heart attacks are a little bit more common among men, but they're definitely not rare at Mm. all in women. Mm. So in the UK, every year, 30,000 women are uh, um, admitted to hospital with a heart attack. So that's about 100 every day. So you can't call something that's 100 every day that that's rare. So for any for every 10 young men with heart disease, there'll be four or five young women with heart disease. So look, yes, that is yes. But if you go to the older age brackets, then the difference is way, way smaller. Um, and women are much more likely to die from, from heart disease than from all cancers combined. Combined? Yeah. So, mm. you know, not just talking breast cancer, wow. put all the cancers together. And as a woman, you're more likely to die from heart disease than from cancer. That's so, huge. So heart attacks are not rare. Mm. in women at all. We just have to completely dispel that myth. But the second misconception, which is equally important, is this idea that men and women experience heart attacks differently. Mm. And so there's this idea that um, if a woman's having a heart attack, it's going to be really hard to diagnose her because her symptoms are going to be unusual or unpredictable or, you know, we we didn't recognise what was going on because she didn't present with what we expect. It turns out that's just not true at all. Ninety percent, No, 90% of people having a heart attack have exactly the same symptoms. So the most common symptoms of a heart attack are a really crushing chest pain, which can radiate up your arm and up to your jaw, Um, feeling sick, feeling sweaty, feeling lightheaded, um, being a bit short of breath, a lot of fatigue. Women are more likely to feel nauseous than men if they're having a heart attack, but the main symptoms are exactly the same in men and women. So it's not right to say, oh, she didn't present in the way we were expecting. Because I thought that was the new research or finding, that women's symptoms were different. No. Wow. No, it turns out they're not not different. There are absolutely some slight differences, no question. I'm not saying it's identical, Mm -hmm. but the biggest indicator that you're having a heart attack, which is this really shocking chest pain, is Mm. going to be the same. Especially if they're not so rare, you wouldn't be shocked at someone else's, a woman's symptoms. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like something that people, you know, come to hospital with incredibly rarely. It's actually really quite common. So, okay, so two big things that people tend to get wrong. And you can say, well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because it turns out that women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed if they arrive at hospital having a heart attack. 50%, Mm. which is full on because... A mistake in diagnosis if you're having a heart attack obviously can be fatal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you are initially misdiagnosed when you're having a heart attack, your chance of dying is 70% higher. That's a pretty high number, mm. 70%. So this is misdiagnosed though if you're in, by professionals? Absolutely, yeah, yeah by, by doctors in for the, sure. In the emergency department. And so the next thing, the next part of this story is that once we know somebody's having a heart attack or once a heart attack is suspected, there's really clear guidelines about how, you know, what sort of treatment you need to give that person. Um, but the research shows that as well as being misdiagnosed, women aren't getting that gold standard treatment. So women are much more likely to be just sent home with painkillers and told, we don't think there's a big problem here, you know, come back if it persists, but you'll be fine. Whereas what you actually need is someone to go in and put a catheter in and open up your blood 
blood vessels and restore blood flow. And every five minute delay in starting that treatment results in a 5% increased risk of dying. So if you if if somebody's just oh I'm not so sure you know and obviously it's a really big decision to go in and perform that sort of procedure you don't do that lightly but if every 5 minutes you think oh I'm not really sure if she's having a heart attack increases that person's risk of dying then that's also really really serious Do we know what it's commonly misdiagnosed as? Ah uh, that's a really excellent question. I I don't know specifics but my understanding is that what commonly happens is just oh look we're not really quite sure what's going on. Something a bit strange. Are you feeling a bit stressed? Maybe you know maybe you've got other things going on in your life. And and you know it sounds like I'm doctor bashing here. I am not at all. Oh my <laughs> gosh, I hope everyone who's ever heard me speak know how the deep respect I have for our healthcare professionals. It's actually a bigger issue mm. here around bias that that's going on. Um but because of this unequal care, the research that's come out showed that more than 8,000 deaths in England and Wales could have been avoided in the last 10 years. 8,000 women who, who just, because of misconceptions, because of stereotypes, because of misunderstanding, weren't diagnosed correctly and weren't diagnosed quickly enough. But the worst part of the story... No, yeah, the worst part of the story I haven't even told you yet is that the delay for a woman receiving this essential life-saving gold standard treatment pretty much only happens if the doctor that she um, interacts with is male. Wow. So, the, and this, you know, this, this is not me making stuff up. This, um, this result comes from a number of studies, but the biggest one was 1.3 million people in Florida who'd been admitted to a hospital um, with a heart attack and survival rates were two to three times higher for women patients if they were treated by a female doctor. Amazing. Rather than a male doctor. So, you know, what's going on that's just this huge gender bias and stereotyping issue going on and I'll, I'll tweet it out there's a really good piece in the guardian written by um, Sean harding who is a professor of cardiac pharmacology in london and she talks about all of the things that could be going on because this is not about blaming particular individual male doctors this is not about you know this is a big picture systemic systemic problem um, but I have to read you a quote from this article because it's really cutting. She says, Behaving in a manner perceived as traditionally female downgrades you in the idea, sorry, in the eyes of a male physician. There is a much higher chance that your distress will be seen as overblown, inaccurate, or hysterical. I'm waiting for that word. <sighs> Crazy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, hysterical, exactly. Mm. Um, but so, so basically, we can say that individual male doctors can make mistakes. But if you have women in your team, so if you imagine a team of doctors, the more women in the team, the better the outcomes are. Um, and basically the study, this study concluded that the best way to help female patients not suffer this fate is to have gen gender balanced teams of doctors so that we've got more women in teams um, mm. rather than waiting for individual male doctors to have more experience with women experiencing heart attacks. Mm. Let, let's, not, let's not have any sacrificial lambs along the way waiting for male doctors as individuals to have more experiences with women. Let's bring more women into teams essentially. And having more women having heart attacks in movies. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. 
you know, like, I mean, this whole area of study is basically reminding us that all of us as individuals have a role to play. I mean, of course, we can reduce our own risks of heart attack by knowing the risk factors and thinking about our exercise and diet, but also we cannot perpetuate these gender stereotypes and these myths that result in, you know, Mon, who's this incredibly intelligent, well-read, amazing woman, mm-hmm. saying, oh, I thought the new research showed that women <laughs> have different experiences. You know, that's what most of us perceive. Mm. We think that. Mon can get a bit hysterical. And the old baby brain. I would, I would be very careful. Yeah. <laughs> um, one other really interesting um, piece of evidence to back up that this is about bias is you probably won't be surprised when they looked at data about whether the same is true for um, other disadvantaged groups as well as women. It turns out to be very true. So um, you, you, we need to have better doctor-patient matching. If you're from a m- minority racial group, you are much more likely to have better health outcomes if your doctor is from that same um, has the same background as you do well apart from that and obviously having more female um, cardiologists and teams what else how can we do to affect change in this area I mean if someone comes in with a heart attack can't you assume it's a heart attack and then just go from there instead of assuming it's not yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, what can we do is talk about it, which is why I wanted to come in and talk with you guys today, mm. just so there's more awareness. Mm. Um, I mean, that would seem like a smart thing, right? I mean, we're not doctors, and I imagine there's doctors listening saying, no, there's a lot of reasons why you can't just make that assumption, but I, I don't know what they are. I'm not a medical doctor. I do know there's some interesting new research looking at whether AI, whether artificial intelligence can be used to take out the human bias. I was going to say that. Um, mm. So they did a study with 13,000 people coming into hospital who had symptoms of, of um, you know, cardiac issues. And uh, with AI, they produced this algorithm that was significantly better at predicting whether somebody was having a heart attack or not than people were. So it was 84% accurate in working out whether someone needed to go and have what they needed to have done to them because they were having a heart attack, um, whereas conventional tests at the moment are about 50% accurate. So that's interesting, isn't it, that you just say, here are all the stats, chuck it into my algorithm and it spits out and says, yes, this is a real heart attack, quick. Wow. Take action. Let's not put human bias and human... Um, thought processes into the picture, I guess. How hideous! What a gorgeous, what a beautiful study, though. <laughs> well, it's just it's it's a really interesting thing for us all to think about yeah. in our lives. What mm. what do we just what biases do we just take on board without questioning them? Mm. That's right. Okay, uh, poor diagnostic <laughs> outcomes for women with heart disease. <laughs> Doctor Jen, unsung science communicator. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> See ya. Triple R. Oslo Davis is an illustrator, cartoonist and writer whose work has featured worldwide in numerous projects and publications, including the New York Times, The Age, The Monthly, Readings, Mianjin, and whose art you'll recognise on Triple R Merch. His new book, Oslo's Melbourne, Illustrated Adventures in the World's Most Tolerated City, is out now via Black Ink. And to tell us about it, the author and Walkley Award finalist joins us now. Oslo, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's our deep and abiding pleasure. (laughs) Um, you're You're a reluctant... Authority and maybe even reluctantly sentimental about Melbourne. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I kind of have to catch myself every time I feel a little bit sentimental about this city. Um, mm. And that sounds like a bad thing, doesn't it? But um, my natural sort of disposition is uh, sarcasm and cynicism. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sort of trying to find the, the, the negative side of most things. But uh, when I start to actually like the place, it's kind of like, oh, what's going on here? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think is one of the most overrated features of Melbourne? <laughs> oh, geez. I don't know. It's, 
it's uh, it's. I mean, the, the title kind of refers to the livability of Melbourne, and I don't know that Melbourne is completely livable so easily. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, inner city is is very cushy, but you know, you drive out um, any freeway. Uh, in the morning and you see the millions of people driving their cars into the city every morning, bumper to bumper for an hour, you know, from, <laughs> yeah. from Werribee or Hoppers Crossing or Point Cook or, you know, you just think, wow, this is living, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you get around too. I mean, what are we talking? Keelor, Preston Markets, Camberwell, Glen Iris. You make it a habit to really jump around. Get on around. those freeways. You love getting on there. <laughs> Well, my other, you know, big job that um, people might know is overheard and that sort of takes me around the city a fair bit in terms of sort of hunting out uh, quotes that people say from different Mm. pockets of the community. So, yeah, I mean, I do get out and about, um, but as I probably say in the book somewhere, it's... It's sort of a reluctant thing. Mm-hmm. If I had it my own my way, I'd probably just stay in my house and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know just watch TV and you know go to the shops. Go to an overpriced milk bar, which <laughs> yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the milk bar proprietor. You uh, you actually speak about the fear of living anywhere else, and that's what keeps you here. Have you lived anywhere else? Are you? Yeah, well, I have. I've lived overseas, and I grew up in Tasmania, and. Uh, moved to Melbourne about almost 20 years ago now Uh, and I've had friends who've moved to the country, moved to the beach, uh, that sort of thing, moved to the, um, you know, different parts of uh, Australia and again, inner city Melbourne is is very different from the rest of Australia as Mm. as we know Uh, and so to move to uh, Swan Hill uh, is kind of extremely scary uh, compared to... um, the scary stuff that's in Melbourne. Mm. So, uh, yeah. you know, I'd kind of prefer to sort of put up with stuff here rather than <laughs> put up with a, a bad uh, chicken masala in, in, in a chuka. Well, I was, was going to say, what keeps bringing you back here then? Yeah, well, I mean, family and uh, okay. coffee Not and culture. <laughs> okay. and Yeah, yeah it's it, there's millions of redeeming qualities of Melbourne, of course. When, oh, you, when you are abroad, do you ever find yourself reluctantly or sort of subconsciously leaning into that Melbourne talk about the things you miss in from Melbourne uh, yes yeah I guess I do uh, I do get very critical like I, I was recently overseas in in Canada and I went to some towns there and was kind of really disappointed I couldn't find a, an Indian biryani that I <laughs> that I liked you know I live in West Footscray so it's sort of little India over there mm. and you can get some great Indian food and then I go to another big city of the world and I think what the heck you know where's the biryani <laughs> why isn't this just like my hometown everywhere yeah. I go yeah. what's wrong with this place um as an intrepid observer do you uh do you, are you noticed much anymore? Are people's head in their phones and you can get away with people watching? Yeah, Melbourne's still big enough and, you know, um, I still go to events and things and someone says, oh, this is Oslo Davis, he does Overheard, and the oh. other person goes, no, I don't, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so, and, and I'm like, yeah, look, just forget about it. It's just something, something I do sometimes. And, and uh, so I'm pretty, pretty well uh, aware that there's a... A bigger world than, yeah. than and how many, what I do. How many moleskin books do you reckon you've gone through? <laughs> well, I gave up on those years ago because they're too expensive, and what? I get I get moleskin fear. Um, <laughs> you know, when you get a moleskin, it's really nice and new, mm. but you yeah. just it's too precious to touch. So I just buy cheap stuff now. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you're not intimidated by the media yeah. so much. <laughs> um, right. And it, there's so much. Uh, it's a it's a gorgeous book. 
uh, it, it, and it's so cheeky and it encapsulates your spirit perfectly. Uh, and the observations, there's an illustration in there of I suppose it looks like a, maybe a boyfriend of an influencer. You do see a fair bit of that now. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, the, which one was that one? Well, I don't know, like lying on the ground looking for a good angle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was part of a sketchbook series I did for the Age newspaper, which was uh, kind of fun. And I could basically just uh, do whatever I wanted for that little pocket. And uh, it was observations of daily life, a bit like Overheard, but more kind of funny things I've seen. And, yeah, I mean, that was people taking photos of, you know... A, a, a woman who was crouched down so low to the ground <laughs> taking a photo of a flower in, in Flinders Lane. I just thought, man, you really want to take a photo of that flower, yeah. don't you? you, know? <laughs> uh, you well, I was just going to say, you speak of the Docklands and how unspectacular it is, um, and if it were a font, it'd be Comic Sans. <laughs> I've got to say, I think it's more of a Helvetic and you. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, Comic Sans, I don't mind. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, oh, that's I, the problem there. That's I it. have heard that Comic Sans is coming back, so maybe Docklands is coming back too. <laughs> oh, you think? Yeah, maybe. Right. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, yeah, Docklands. I wrote that for a while ago. and uh, Man, um, I haven't been there for a while. I don't know if you guys have, but Mm-mm. what's it like down there these days? Is it, Well, the um, wheel's closed. I mean, I've, yeah, I've, yeah. I've been down there a lot. Uh, <laughs> just, and, just well, I was wandering around the, uh, <laughs> the Docklands district or whatever it's called, the shopping centre. Precinct, probably. Precinct, yes. And it's like, well, there's no, as you say, there's no real tangible difference between this and any other shopping centre. In fact, it's arguably better because you can see the sky. Yeah, and there's water. It's actually, you know, a half-decent-looking kind of place. But uh, it's, it's you know, wind tunnel and there's nobody there. Yeah, it just feels bleak. Mm. And, but as you say, the library as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary library. Well, where, where do you think is an underrated, maybe aside from Docklands, an underrated place in Melbourne? Yeah, in the book I, I talk about um, something out at West Hall, which was the sighting of a, of a, a supposed UFO back in the 60s. And... Melbourne actually has a lot of these kind of quirky, weird places in the middle of the burbs. Like you can go to this place in Westall and go to the park and there's a sort of a monument to the to the UFO. They've built a child's playground shaped in a UFO mm. out there. Um, so that's kind of funny. And then up at Keelor, there's a remote controlled car club. Um, they have cool. two tracks and these uh, 30-something guys in trucker hats go there and just race. <laughs> well, not even race. They just drive their own cars by themselves on their own <laughs> around this track. I mean, not, I'm not against no. it. No. But it's It's a it's hidden odd. gem. Yeah, it's a hidden gem. It's so totally. funny people doing activities together by themselves. <laughs> Very Melbourne. Very Melbourne. Um, you also write that absurdity and nonsense are the only things that will save us. Is that something you have to remind yourself or is that just a default position that you, you yeah, have it? Well, both of those things, I think, uh, Dan. I think, uh, you know, we kind of forget um, the reason um, we we exist sometimes and, and we need to think about that uh, these Things like jokes and uh, absurdity and nonsense and silly are kind of what keep us going. They're, they're the sort of things we forget. We're too busy working or doing study or whatever and we've got to have a bit of fun mm. and not take ourselves too seriously. Mm. And also, one more step beyond that, and do stupid stuff <laughs> or just be crazy or 
ridiculous. That's right. I mean, you there was a there's a piece in the book where you were uh, documenting maybe an arts festival in 2008, and you couldn't sort of re you couldn't re-enter that world for a while. It burnt you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, that's a hotbed of uh, of of ridiculousness in, in itself. You know, the art world in Melbourne. I mean, I'm connected to it, and I yeah. like it. I like a lot of people who work there, but um, there's a lot of pretension and uh, and stuff you just can't resist sort of making fun about. Um, yeah. So there's a big section on art in the book uh, yeah. which uh, I yeah legs akimbo i liked gotta <laughs> yeah, right. watch art legs akimbo yeah there's a certain way to stand in front of a piece of contemporary art <laughs> yeah. your legs akimbo apart and uh yeah with your arms crossed what was the last challenge you set yourself there's a bit in the book where you say oh, i'll see if i can draw everybody that's walks past or you know yeah. uh, give yourself a time limit or do you is that a common trait of you to yeah. keep pushing yourself? Yeah, well, I, I'm a firm believer if you don't have anything to say or, or you don't know what to do, you just get your hand moving and drawing or writing or whatever and you just might see what happens. And I did some uh, uh, a short residency at the State Library of Victoria and I sat down in the common areas there and just decided to draw people as they were walking past. And, you know, you only have ten, well, two seconds to see someone's face. And so I filled up, you know, ten pages of sketch sketchbooks Um uh, drawing all these faces and just to you know just to have fun and try to capture someone really fun, um, you know quickly mm. um, so that and that stuff's in the book too which is yeah kind of fun. Uh, and this launch sounds fun tells can you tell us about that yeah so uh, the the publishers organized something uh, this Saturday at um, at a Masonic hall in um, in Yarraville uh, it's it's put on by the Sun bookshop uh, it's at four in the afternoon this Saturday. And I think Elizabeth McCarthy from here is going to be there. Yep. And um, Filthy Ratbag, uh, who, her real name is Celeste Mountjoy. Who you spoke to on your show. Yeah, and we got on so well. And I just thought, wow, it just makes so much sense to catch... Well, was, I was speaking to her about her great book. And uh, we had a lot of fun chatting about jokes and stuff. So I thought, well, it wouldn't it be great to just keep that going and yeah. uh, have mm. another chat with her. And do you have more uh, books than uh, Cricketer Mitchell Stark or not? <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah, far out. That's sort of a big bugbear. I don't know if people understand what we're talking about, but in the book there's something about um, how all these sports stars seem to get children's book offers or, or someone has nothing to do with the book industry somehow managed, manages to write a children's book. <laughs> more sales an actual yeah. qualified genius writers and authors. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, get your hands on a copy of Oslo's Melbourne with Oslo's Skipping Girl Vinegar on the front. <laughs> Gorgeous. Uh, it's an illustrated adventure in the world's most tolerated city. It's out via Black Ink. Head to the uh, launch this weekend. Oslo Davis, thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you. Ah, that's right. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website. <laughs>